I want to share with you a message that has really, it's not a new message for me. It's something that's been in my heart for decades. Um, uh, one of the things that I've seen, and, and uh, Pastor Mark didn't give you an exact time frame, but my wife and I are in our 35th year of ministry. And, you know, we started kind of young, and um, but it's been a great, great ride. We've, we've preached in 46 of the 50 states, and We've preached in 26 nations and some of those nations multiple times and um, did 22 years of pastoral ministry here in the States uh, before we launched into the traveling that we, we've been doing for the last 12 and a half years or so. Um, but one of the things that I always saw that was a stumbling block to people uh, was when they had a misconception of God. And especially when they believed that God was somehow behind the problems in their life. That God was sending problems and, and God was doing things negatively to them. And um, we, we just need to understand this simple truth. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they might have life, that you might have life. And that you might have it more abundantly. And so we always have to, uh, as we're walking through life and walking with God, we have to be able, because our mind wants to understand, you know, when negative things happen, when bad things happen, you know, we want to kind of figure out how do we fit that in and and in our perspective of God and things like that. And um, we, we have to balance these two truths that, number one, God is a good God. And at the same time, the world has a lot of bad stuff in it. And we're in the world, but we're not of it. But how many of you know that on occasion we do, uh, Jesus, you know, the Bible makes it clear. And let me just go ahead and give you the background. I was preaching in Indonesia a couple of years ago. And um, when you preach through interpreters in, in other languages, you're, you're really at the mercy of the interpreter. Uh, because, you know, sometimes there's even nuances and there's little uh, phrases that, you know, maybe they don't hear it quite right. Maybe me or any the person preaching maybe doesn't say it quite right. But I was preaching in Indonesia. I knew that it was the most populous Muslim nation in the world. I knew that the people there at times faced, uh, you know, certain challenges that probably are... Um, not something I can personally relate to because, you know, I live in a country that is, uh, you know, predominantly, you know, favorable to at least, you know, toleration and things of that nature. And um, uh, I knew that, that, you know, I'd read reports about different experiences that people had in that part of the world where they dealt with, you know, very negative persecution and that type of thing. And I really, my heart, I just really wanted to bless and encourage those people. And, and just as a point of connection, I was just making really a simple point that everybody faces problems. How many of you know that's true? Everybody faces challenges and difficulties and problems in life. And I, I made this statement. I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if at the end of this service, I could pray a miracle prayer? This is what I said to this uh, Indonesian congregation. I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if at the end of this service I could pray a miracle prayer? 
And because of the faith in that prayer and because of the anointing in that prayer, God would bless each and every one of you with a trouble-free life. You would never face another problem again as long as you live. Now, you heard me in English and, and you understood that what I said was, did you notice that big word, wouldn't it be wonderful if? Uh, if is a huge word, isn't it? It may just be two letters, but it's, it's a big word. And apparently the interpreter, my, my interpreter didn't catch the, the hypothetical nature of the uh, statement. And what the interpreter said was, made it a, a, a fact. At the end of this service, Brother Cook is going to pray a miracle prayer over this entire congregation. And because of the great faith and the great anointing in that prayer, God is going to bless each and every one of us with a trouble-free life. We will never face another problem again as long as we live. Instead of it being a hypothetical, it was a declarative, you know, type statement. And um, the reason I knew that something went haywire is when I made my statement and then paused for the interpreter, when the interpreter got done, the congregation went wild. Um, they began to shout and rejoice and celebrate. And I realized, wait a minute, their response is not matching up to what I just said. So apparently the, the interpreter said something that I didn't say and and, um, you know, when you're in that situation as a preacher, it's kind of awkward because, my goodness, the people that, you know, that's the most excited they've been the whole service. And who, who wants to be the bad guy that pops the balloon and rains on their parade and that type of thing? Well, I didn't want to, you know, I hated to uh, mess up their celebration. But at the same time, I have a responsibility to the truth and I can't be a part of something ethically and morally that would uh, mislead people or leave people with the wrong impression. And so uh, I had to kind of say, please wait just a minute. And I, I, I said, and I, I did this real carefully to make sure the interpreter got it. I said, I did not mean to imply that I could pray that type of prayer. I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if, you know, and made sure the interpreter got the, wouldn't it be wonderful if... I could do that. And so the interpreter, you know, went ahead and, and man, everybody got depressed. And, and they, they, you know, kind of put their heads down and, you know, all the rejoicing stopped, all the celebrating stopped. Nobody was happy anymore. And, you know, I was like the Grinch that just had stolen Christmas, you know. And I said, but listen, I said, I, I need to share with you what the truth is on, on this type of topic. And I... I, I, I took, I had him turn to John, uh, I'm sorry, to Psalm 3419. And I, I read Psalm 3419 and I, I told them, I said, you know, real faith, real Bible faith is not wishful thinking. Real Bible faith is not some kind of unrealistic hyper idealism. Real faith is based on what the Bible really says. And Psalm 34, 19, one powerful verse simply says, many, everybody say many, many, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But, see if that's all it said, that'd be kind of a downer. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but 
the Lord delivers him out of them all. So, see, the, the, the thing is that the Bible never, ever promises us that we're not going to face any problems. Uh, what the Bible promises us, and, and we, we need to understand what that means when it says many are the afflictions of the righteous. You know, there could be somebody sitting here that says, well, you know, I guess I'm not righteous because I make, you know, mistakes from time to time. Listen, righteousness is not based on our perfection or our performance. Uh, if you think that a righteous person is a person that has never made a mistake or never committed a sin, uh, that's not true. The Bible says we've all sinned, right? But Jesus, what did he do? He died on the cross. He shed his blood. He rose from the dead. He's alive as the Lord. And he's offering every human being on the face of the earth the gift of forgiveness, the gift of acceptance, the gift of righteousness, the gift of eternal life. And, and how many of you here tonight, you have made Jesus the Lord of your life? Let me see your hand. You've embraced him. And tonight, as you acknowledge that you have put your faith and your trust in Him, uh, part of the package there of the benefits that you have received is that you are now righteous. Not because of how perfect you've been, but because of how perfect He is. Not because of how good you are, but because of how good He is. Uh, he has given us His righteousness as a gift, even though we've all messed up at some point or another in our life. Um, he's made us righteous with His righteousness. And the Bible says in Psalm 34, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. You're going to face some bumps in the road as you go through this life. You're going to face some challenges. But the Lord delivers Him out of them all. Then I also shared with that congregation in Indonesia, I, had them, I wanted to show them a New Testament verse, and so I encouraged them to turn to John 16, 33. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself speaking, and Jesus said in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. And I want you to know that is still true today. When we look at the words of the Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, they give us peace. Uh, if you're looking to the world to give you peace, the world can't give it to you because the world doesn't have any of it to give. If you're looking to the world to give you joy, the world is not going to be able to give it to you because the world doesn't have true joy. If you're looking to the world to give you security, the world is not going to give you security because the world is about the most insecure place around. Uh, but in Jesus, we have peace. In Jesus, we have joy. In Jesus, we have confidence. We have security in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, that in me, you might have peace. In the world, he said, you shall have tribulation. But, he said, be of good cheer. Why? Because he said, I have overcome the world. So nowhere does the Bible promise us that, that if we believe in God, we're never going to face a problem, we're never going to face a challenge. But what the Bible promises us is no matter what the world throws at us, our God is bigger than the world. And our God is faithful, He is committed to us, 
Uh, he is he is in covenant with us. He, he said he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll be a constant source of empowerment and help to us so that no matter what the world, the flesh, the devil, no matter what comes against us in life, uh, we have the promise from God that he's going to help us through that mess and to overcome that mess. That's why the Bible says that no weapon formed against you will prosper. It doesn't say weapons won't be formed against you. It says no weapon formed against you will prosper. I had the privilege of, you know, working on Brother Hagin's staff for many years, and I remember him telling the story back when he was traveling and doing church meetings, and he had a prayer line, and and uh, he was praying for people who'd come up, but he would ask them before he'd pray, he'd say, how can I pray for you? Because he wanted to know how to pray so he could pray, you know, a little bit more specifically uh, with them. And one gentleman came and stood before him and Brother Hagin said, how can I pray for you? And this individual said, oh, Brother Hagin, I want you to pray for me that I'll never have any more problems from the devil. And Brother Hagen, he had a little ornery streak to him. He said, oh, he said, uh, so you want me to pray that you'll die? And the person said, oh, no, I don't want you to pray that. And Brother Hagen said, well, the only way you're never going to face any problems is to just go on to heaven. That's the only place there's no problems is heaven. And uh, so, you know, he went ahead and taught and shared, you know, with that individual some of these things. But but we need to know God did not leave us down here defenseless. Uh, God did not leave us down here without hope. He did not leave us down here to be doormats, to be walked on by this world or to be victims of this world. You know, we are more than conquerors. Through him that loved us. But that means there are going to be some battles that we're going to fight. And there are, you know, we use this term. You, people understand the term storms. Everybody say storms. storms. People understand that there are storms in life. And we know literally there are storms that people face. And But figuratively, people use that term. You know, somebody will say, well, how so and so doing? Well, they've been kind of through a stormy season in their life. Well, we know what that means. We're saying they've been through a, a period of adversity. Have you ever been through a stormy season uh, in your life? You know what that means. Um, to talk about storms, let's just talk about storms literally. Um, I already told you I'm from Oklahoma, which you guys were not very nice about. But um, <clears throat> uh, I'll, I'll forgive you, you know. But... Uh, um, what is it that we in Oklahoma have to deal with when it comes to storms? We, we have a lot of tornadoes through there and a lot of nasty tornadoes through there. And, um, you know, when it's storm season, people in Oklahoma, they, they pay attention, you know, to, to what's going on weather-wise and all that. And there are certain things people do to, you know, kind of take precaution against tornadoes and, and, and uh, you know, protect themselves in the event a tornado comes. People want to be prepared and... You know, be able to, in an unlikely event, you get hit, uh, you want to, you know, be in, uh, use as much wisdom as you can to get through that, in addition to obviously trusting God and all that. Um, our friends down on the Gulf Coast and on the Southeast Coast of the United States, what kind of storms do they have to, uh, do they have to be aware of hurricanes and 
Hurricanes are a totally different kind of storm. You know, they can, they know those are coming, you know, long time in advance and people can get prepared a certain way, uh, for hurricanes and that type of thing. Um, I don't know a, a lot about the weather in Boise, but I, I know probably all across, you know, Idaho, Montana, the Dakotas, uh, I have a brother that lives in Minneapolis and I know, uh, they have to deal with blizzards. And ice storms, I don't know how much of that you get here, but um, there's something you do differently to prepare for a blizzard uh, to get through it effectively than what you do to get through a, a tornado. For example, my wife, uh, she keeps a little more eye on the weather than I do. I don't pay it much attention, but she keeps an eye on it. And I might be upstairs in my office studying, and, and if she calls up and says, Hey, Tony... Uh, there, we're, we're in a tornado warning. Uh, there's a tornado on the ground. Probably be good for you to come downstairs. You know, never have I said to her, Oh, honey, don't worry about it. I, I've got a snow shovel in the garage. It, no worries. <laughs> because snow shovels don't do you any good against tornadoes. They're wonderful if you have a blizzard, but they don't do you any good against a tornado. So in the natural Just when it comes to natural, literal storms, we have enough sense and enough wisdom to know that not every storm is the same kind of storm, don't we? Not every storm is the same. We could say not one size does not fit all. Now, spiritually speaking and biblically speaking, when we talk about the storms of life, just adversity in general, um, I find it very interesting that in the Bible, uh, you can find more than this, but I, I see three key storms in the Bible. And I don't want to over-spiritualize everything, but I believe in each of these three storms that we're going to look at tonight, there is a powerful lesson about the storms of life that we might face today. And the first storm that we're going to talk about is the storm of Jonah. Uh, How many of you feel like you know the story of Jonah pretty well? Let me see your hand. You feel like you, you know the story. Some of us, you know, if we grew up in Sunday school or vacation Bible school or children's church, you know, we may have heard the story of Jonah, you know, a long time ago. Other people may not know that story so much. So I'll just hit a few highlights of it. Jonah, uh, was a prophet. He was a preacher in Israel, you know, several hundred years before Jesus came. And uh, as a prophet, you know, it was his responsibility to hear from God and say whatever God was telling him to say. And at the time of Jonah, uh, when he ministered and lived, uh, the Israelites had a bitter enemy uh, called the Assyrians. And... Jonah was incredibly shocked one day when God told him to go to basically, well, the capital city of that enemy uh, country and, and army. God said, go to the capital city of Nineveh and tell them uh, that God has observed their wickedness and they need to repent. Now, the Assyrians were known for being a, a very violent people. And Nineveh, their headquarters, their capital city, uh, today the, the ancient ruins of Nineveh 
are in the modern day city of Mosul in Iraq. And it's a place currently occupied by ISIS. You know, the terrorists, the Islamic State organization. Now, to, to really put this in context, um, we'll just use Pastor Mark, for example. I'm going to be nicer to you than you were to me. Um, <laughs> let's say that tonight you're in bed, ready for bed, and all of a sudden the word of the Lord comes to you. And, and the Lord speaks to you and says, I want you to take a flight to uh, Baghdad, and I want you to get a vehicle. I want you to go up to Mosul. And I want you to march up and down the streets of that ISIS-occupied uh, city. And I want you to declare the word of the Lord. And I want you to tell them that God has seen their wickedness. And if they don't repent, they're going to be destroyed. How many of you want... Let's just take up an offering tonight. And, um, and uh, we'll just send Pastor Mark over there. How would that be? What would you say? Here am I, Lord. Send Tony. <clears throat> but you can understand. I mean, seriously, that's that's basically what happened when God told uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. And to give you kind of a little geography here, let's just say that this right here is the nation of Israel. Uh, Nineveh was just right up here. Okay, just a little bit north and a little bit east of Israel. It's not really all that far. And Jonah, instead of obeying God, do you know what Jonah did? He got on a ship and he went to a place. Uh, he got on a ship that was going to a place called Tarshish. Now, Tarshish, historians tell us, was in what today is the nation of Spain. So you think, wait a minute, here's Israel, here's Nineveh, and Spain is way over here. It, literally, it was as far away from Nineveh as you could possibly go. And, and what we find in uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, you might turn back there, that's one of the uh, minor prophets of the Old Testament. In Jonah... Chapter 1, we find out that Jonah got into the ship and he actually told everybody on the ship that I serve Jehovah God and I'm running away from Him. Why on earth someone would ever tell everybody that? I mean, it's one thing to backslide. It's one thing to just totally disobey God. It's another thing to brag about it and advertise it. And so, long story short, they uh, got on that ship and started sailing. They were out in the Mediterranean, and a horrible, horrible storm came, and everybody on board was terrified. And because of, you know, their superstitious nature, they said, hey, you know, that Jonah guy, uh, he told us he was running away from his God. Now, they all serve different gods. And he told us he's running away from his God, so let's throw him overboard, and they did. And they threw him overboard. And um, the storm stopped. And, and what we pick up reading in Jonah 1.17 was, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. I don't know about you, 
um, I grew up in the middle of four cornfields in Indiana. I didn't grow up, you know, on the sea, you know, and I, I didn't grow up as a fisherman or anything like that. So to me, to me, fish uh, were Mrs. Paul's frozen fish sticks. <laughs> that was fish to me. And, you know, kind of growing up and then getting out and like being, any of you have been over to the fish market in Seattle where they've got these big fish and they're throwing them and stuff like that? To me, just, and I, I hope this doesn't sound bad, but that, I just don't want to touch fish. I just don't, they're slimy, they, um, I just, yeah, I, I have no interest in even touching a fish. And to the idea of going inside a huge fish's mouth, and going down, being swallowed down its throat and landing in a fish inside of a fish belly. In, you're, you're sitting there in complete darkness and you're in, you're floating in gastric juices and anything you touch is, is the stomach of a fish. And there's things bumping up against you, partially digested things of whatever it is. And, and Jonah even talks in, in verse 2 or chapter 2 about seaweed being wrapped around his head. I mean, it's just, just gross. Gross. Terrible. Can you imagine the smell inside that thing? I mean, it was... But here, here's what the Bible says, and I want you to realize in, in the Scripture, there were no chapters and verses in the original. Those were added later to help us find things and locate things. So when it goes to chapter 2, verse 1, there was no break. There was no chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 1. So here's what this really says. Now, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish... For three days and three nights. The next verse says, Then Jonah prayed. And I read that and I think, Seriously? You are in the grossest, slimy, gastric juice, acid, it's probably bleaching his skin, the smell, the stench, the seaweed wrapped around his head, fish skeletons bumping up against him, and, and he's in there for three days and three nights, and then he prays? How about praying a little earlier than that? See, Jonah, and if you read the book of Jonah, here's what you find out. He hated the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrians. And when God told him, Jonah, I want you to go preach to them, because if they don't repent, judgment is coming, and they're going to be destroyed when Jonah realized, if I don't preach, they're all going to die. That's when he got on the ship to go to Spain. He wanted them to die. 
He wanted them to incur wrath and judgment and devastation and destruction. He didn't want to preach because when Jonah finally did go and preach to them and and they repented, he looked at God and said, God, this is why I didn't want to come. I knew you'd be merciful to these people. And Jonah pouted and was mad and was angry because he hated those people so much. To summarize this, Jonah got into his storm because of disobedience. But you know what? If you read that prayer that he prayed, once he began to pray, you know what he did? He repented. He turned his heart. And and, and the fact that he apparently didn't pray until three days and three nights were over, can you say stubborn? Wow, he had to have a... A stubborn will to sit there in that fish for three days and three nights and think, I'd rather sit in gastric juice than to go preach to those horrible people and see God save them and rescue them. And and, and he finally went, but he, he repented. He said, God, I'll do what you want me to do. And you know what? When he did that, Uh, The Bible says that God caused the fish to expel him. We'll just leave it at that. And and as soon as he got expelled on the shore, the Bible says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And he went. He never really had a good attitude about it, but at least he obeyed externally. But Jonah got into his storm. Why? Disobedience. And in order for him to get out of the storm, what did he have to do? He had to repent. He had to change his heart, change his mind, and and literally change his direction in life. Have you ever heard, I know you have, you've heard the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Have you all heard that? You know, one of the lines in the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus goes like this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And I'm 55 and I've been through things in life just like everybody's been through things in life. And we've all been through some of the challenges and difficulties and painful experiences of life. And I don't know about you, but I just don't like pain. I don't like physical pain. I don't like mental or emotional pain or relational pain or financial pain. I just don't like pain. How about you? Just don't don't like it. I mean, if I get a choice, pain, no pain, I'm going to go no pain. But I found that there just because just because we live in a fallen world, there's just some pain we're going to face. I'm not trying to be negative. I remember when I was 20 years old at Bible school and I heard Brother Hagin get up and make this statement. He said, the crises of life come to us all. And I thought, I don't accept that. I don't receive that. And I thought he didn't know what he was talking about. I thought, well, I thought this guy was a faith guy, but... You know, obviously he's not really fully in faith because he thinks everybody's going to experience some problems in life. And in my, you know, infinite wisdom of 20 years, 
you know, I, I decided he was wrong. And, you know, but you live a little while and you find out, no, he was right. And, and, and not long after that I heard him make that statement, I was just sure he was wrong. Another great faith minister wrote a book called Ready or Not, Here Comes Trouble. And I thought, that's such a negative book. What? How, how pessimistic can you? That's unbelief. And until I lived longer and I find out, yeah, ready or not, trouble's coming. So we better get ready. Not out of fear, not out of worry or anxiety, but just out of prudence. We want to put on the whole armor of God and be strong in the Lord and the power of His might and things of that nature. So, um, but, but Jonah got into his storm because of disobedience. He got out through repentance. But the problem we have is that sometimes we think, because that was Jonah's experience, we think that's everybody's experience. In other words, there's been a tendency among some Christians to think that, well, Jonah got into trouble because he was in sin, he was in rebellion. So therefore, any Christian who gets in trouble or has some kind of adversity or challenge or health issue or financial problem, there must be sin in their life. They must be out of the will of God. They must be in rebellion. Well, you remember I said there's different kinds of storms? That not every storm is the same? There are some folks that get into a storm because of rebellion, like Jonah did. But but there's a lot of people that encounter problems when... They haven't done anything wrong. Have you ever had, you ever been going around just doing everything right that you knew of and bam, you got hit by something? Well, let me show you a place in the Bible where that happened. Mark chapter four. This is, we looked at the storm of Jonah. And the lesson of Jonah is let's avoid those kind of storms that come because of disobedience. Let's avoid the needless pain. Uh, but if we if we do get in one of those storms, let's do what Jonah did to get out. Let's repent and get back on track with God. But in Mark chapter 4, we see a totally different kind of storm. And this is what we're going to call the storm of the disciples. And uh, their storm is totally different than the storm of Jonah. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and let me give you the context here. Jesus had been preaching all day long. At the Sea of Galilee, he'd been on the seashore preaching and and toward the end of the day, here's what it says, Mark 4, 35. On the same day, when the evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, what did he say to them? Let us cross over to the other side. So you don't have to be a big theologian or Bible scholar to understand this. You're on one side of the lake. Jesus says, let's go to the other side of the lake. So what are you supposed to do? Go to the other side of the lake. So what did the disciples do? Uh, when they left the multitude, meaning they got away from the people, uh, they took him, they took Jesus along in the boat, put him in the boat uh, as he was. And other little boats were with him. So the, the indication is they just said to the people, hey, we got to go now. They got away from the people. They put Jesus in the boat. They all got in, you know, a lot of people got in the big boat. Other people got in some of the smaller boats. And they head across the lake. Now, question, are they doing what Jesus said to do? Are they therefore in obedience or disobedience? 
Are they in the will of God or out of the will of God? They're doing what Jesus said. They're, they're in the will of God. They're in obedience. And we all know that if you're doing everything right, nothing bad can happen. No. What happens in the next verse? And a great wind storm arose. And the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. This means filling up with water. But Jesus, he was in the stern or the back of the boat asleep on a pillow. Isn't that interesting? This boat is just being battered. It's being filled with water. And Jesus is just sound asleep. Uh, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That statement is so revealing. You know, Jesus taught that our words reveal what's in our hearts. And when their statement to Jesus was, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? That statement reveals two things. Number one, they thought that Jesus didn't care. And I know, I've had a couple things happen in my life where my initial reaction was, God, if you really loved me, I wouldn't be facing this. God, if you really cared, this wouldn't be happening. Anybody here ever been tempted to think that way? Let me tell you something. Never interpret the love of God in the light of natural circumstances. God loves you. He cares. And I, I understand none of us want to face junk in life, garbage in life, bad stuff in life, adversity, calamity, problems in life. But just because we face something has nothing to do with God not caring or God not loving us. The second aspect of what they said, they said, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Isn't it something how just because you begin to face adversity, immediately you come to the conclusion, we're dying. That's what we call catastrophic thinking. Worst case scenario. Um, you know, and that's what worry and anxiety will do. Um, you know, we feel a little bump. We, you know, we do something. And immediately it's, it's a death sentence. Uh, because we, you know... Uh, our anxiety, you know, gets revved up and things of that nature. They said, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Then he, Jesus, arose. And I love this. And he rebuked. Everybody say rebuked. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Isn't that awesome? How many of you like instant, immediate things happening like that? Now, let me tell you what Jesus did not do. What Jesus did not do was he did not get up and notice the storm and then turn to his disciples and say, All right, which one of you guys sinned? See, he, Jesus knew this is not a Jonah storm. This storm was not happening because of any kind of disobedience. Let me tell you something else that Jesus didn't do. And this flies in the face of the way so many people think about God. 
Jesus did not stand up, look at the storm and say, wow, God must be trying to teach us something. Jesus did not believe that that storm had come from God. Because if Jesus believed the storm was from God, it would have been inappropriate for him to have rebuked the storm. Jesus understood this is something that's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The storm was really designed to keep them from getting to the other side. Now, if you know the Bible, you know the very next chapter. As soon as they made it to the other side, they got out of the boat and they found this individual known as the madman of Gadara. And he was a pathetic, demonized, you know, very tormented individual. And Jesus was going to set him free. That's why Jesus wanted to get to the other side. See, one of the things we're going to find about these storms is every storm came when the person who got into the storm had a destination. Jonah had a destination of Nineveh. Jesus had a destination of the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the storm very often is is given as a distraction to keep you from your purpose. Jonah got into his storm because of disobedience, and he got out through repentance. The disciples got into their storm, listen to this, in the middle of perfect obedience. Did you ever hear this phrase, Satan comes for the word's sake? The disciples got into their storm in the midst of perfect obedience. And they got out of their storm through spiritual authority, through the spoken word. I want you to notice Jesus didn't pray to God about this storm. He just spoke to the storm. Now, there's there's a time when we pray to God about things, but there's a time where God just empowers us to just speak the word to the situation. And this was a situation, not of prayer, but of spiritual authority, that Jesus spoke the words, and the storm ceased. So those are two storms, but there's another type of storm in the Bible. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27, and this is a storm that involved the Apostle Paul. This is Paul's storm. And before we get into this, let me give you a little bit of background Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21. Does anybody remember what Paul got arrested for? Jaywalking? Preaching. He got arrested for preaching the gospel. And he was in that court system there in Israel for a few years, and it was going to be a religious trial, and he knew he was not going to get a fair deal. And because there were so many biases and prejudices against him. So because Paul was not only a Jewish gentleman, but he was also a Roman citizen. So what he did was he appealed uh, to his based on his Roman citizenship. He appealed to Caesar in Rome. He wanted a, in today's terms. He wanted a change of venue and he wanted to go from a religious court system to a secular court system. And so now, 
because Israel is occupied by the Romans, it's now the responsibility of the Roman authorities to take Paul all the way from Israel, all the way over to Rome. And they do that, of course, by sea, by the Mediterranean. And so they put Paul on a ship and they go out. They made it as far as an island in the middle of the Mediterranean called the Island of Crete. And it's kind of questionable whether they should continue on because winter was approaching and they really shouldn't probably stay in that particular harbor. It wasn't safe, but it was very dangerous to journey out. And so we pick up at the very end of Acts chapter 27, verse 9. Acts chapter 27, verse 9. At the very end of the verse, it talks about how that, you know, sailing was now dangerous and so on. And it says, and Paul advised them. Paul advised them. Now, can I tell you something? When you're a prisoner, usually the people in charge don't really care what you think. But here's Paul advising them. I'm going to tell you, Paul was a powerful personality. Paul was a a very opinionated, strong-willed, and especially when he believed he had heard from God. And this is what Paul advised them, verse 10, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. Well, does anybody want to take a guess? What do you mean, Paul, you perceive that this voyage is going to be dangerous and life-threatening? Where are you getting this perception? Anybody want to guess how Paul was perceiving this? The Holy Spirit. Paul, he knew, he... He was fallible, he was human, but he was pretty good at being led by the Holy Ghost. He perceived by the Spirit of God that we should not sail. This this could potentially kill all of us. Now, we know that when a man of God speaks by the Spirit, that everybody listens, right? Let's look at the next verse. Nevertheless, the centurion, that's the Roman authority, was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because, verse 12, and because the harbor was not suitable in, the majority, everybody say the majority, the majority advised to set sail from there also. And they were going to try to get to another location. How many of you know the majority is not always right? I'd rather be in agreement with God and have everybody else in disagreement with me than be in agreement with everybody else and all of us be out of agreement with God. Paul was the only spiritual per well, Luke was with him and Aristarchus was with him. But beyond Paul and the two guys traveling with him, I don't know if there were any Christians on this boat at all whatsoever. And Paul was hearing from the Spirit of God. But because he was a prisoner, he didn't have any choice but to go along on this ship, on this journey. And if you study this out in Acts 27, you read the rest of this, you find out that the first day 
They just had beautiful weather and everybody thought, oh, we made the right decision. Just because something looks right initially doesn't mean it's going to stay right. Because what happened then is that they sailed into a storm of, well, the Bible says it was of uh, typhoon proportions. This was a storm that went on for 14 days and nights. How many of you have ever been out at sea in really rough water? Let me see your hand. How many of you have been seasick? Isn't that terrible? Now, I've never been on a, on a ship for 14 days and nights, but last year in March 2013, I took a group of 30 people on a biblical tour of the biblical sites in the nation of Turkey. It was all seven churches of the book of Revelation, plus Colossae, plus Hierapolis, plus Miletus, and, and then we spent a day in Istanbul. But one of the things we did near the ancient ruins of Ephesus, we took a, a boat, an 87-foot boat, on a 40-mile boat ride that took four hours from Ephesus out to the island of Patmos, where John wrote the book of Revelation. The weather was terrible. The, the sea was rough. And I don't want to say everybody because that's not true, but probably 25 out of the 30 people on our boat got very, very sick. And being their leader, I led the way. <laughs> and... Just to give you an idea of what that journey was like, we affectionately later, after everybody, you know, recovered, we referred to that as our Old Testament journey uh, because there were so many heave offerings uh, being rendered. I'm telling you, after four hours on that boat, we had one lady that was so sick, she just, most of us got our bearings back pretty quick, but we had one lady on that, that she was just, I mean, she was out of it for hours and hours. And I mean, she just looked like death warmed over. I, I guess that messes with your equilibrium, your ba- everything. That was four hours. Can you imagine being in a storm at sea for 14 days? It was so bad Um, Acts chapter 27, verse 20, when we read this a little bit more, Acts 27, 20, it says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Those are pretty powerful words, aren't they? I don't know if you've ever been in a storm that lasted, that went on and on and on. But but the Bible tells us that hope deferred, that when we hope for something and it doesn't happen quickly, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And we have to guard ourselves from disillusionment and and you know being overwhelmed by disappointment. Now, this thing went on for 14 days and nights, but I'm going to tell you what that probably seemed to the people on that boat. That probably seemed like 14 years. Let me ask you this question. How, you know, we, we looked at Jesus in that storm and, and they got 
what kind of an answer? An immediate answer. How many of you have ever had an, I mean, either immediate or just almost immediate answer to prayer? Let me see your hand. You've had a, a really quick, immediate and look at, keep your hand up. Look at all these people that have had an immediate answer to prayer. Okay, now put your hands down. How many of you have had answers to prayer, but it wasn't immediate, but you continued and persevered and endured and continued to believe God, and finally you saw a breakthrough? Let me see your hand. See, even more on that. Would you like me to tell you how to always have an immediate answer? I'm going to tell you the how. I'll do that. I'll tell you how to have an immediate answer to prayer right every time, right after I pray that you have a trouble-free life. Is that a deal? Right after I do the one, I'll do the other. But but we read this, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But look at verse 21, but after long abstinence from food. I understand why that, that was the case. After long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said... Men, you should have listened to me. How do we say that today? I told you so. Now, it's not always advisable that you do that, but Paul did it. So if you do it, it is biblical. Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. See, people sometimes miss the miracle that happened here. The miracle that happened here was not an immediate answer. The miracle that happened here is that nobody died. See, you can, well, I just don't understand. Why did it take 14 days? And I just don't understand. Well, what about the fact these guys were all going to die, but now they're not going to die. There's a miracle happened here. And Paul said, there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, listen to this, God has granted you all those who sail with you. That sounds to me like Paul had been making requests for their lives. Paul had been praying for them. You know what? One of the greatest testimonies of Paul's spiritual Christian character is the fact that in the midst... I mean, Paul, that was miserable for Paul too, circumstantially. But even in the midst of that horrible situation, he was praying for the salvation of the people who had put him in the situation when he told them not to do it. 
That is a testimony of the grace of God. Because I'll tell you what, lesser people would have been saying, God, I didn't want to go in this storm. I warned them, God, just get me out alive. I don't care if they all die. They deserve to die. Let them die. Just save me. But Paul was pleading. He, he, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Look at verse 25. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God. I believe God. Even though Paul didn't see an immediate result, he said, I believe God, that it will be just as it was told me. I think it's amazing that Paul didn't get angry at God. You know, a lot of people, if they get in a storm that lasts a while, they get mad at God. Paul didn't hold unforgiveness against the people that put him in the situation. Um, he didn't slip into despair and lose hope. He believed God. Now, Paul got into his storm. Let's just wrap all this up. Paul got into his storm because of the disobedience of others. And you know how he got out of his storm? Through persevering faith. Thank God when we see the immediate manifestations and miracles. Thank God for that. You know, we saw by raised hands. There were a lot of people here who've had instantaneous answers to prayer. And I love that. But it's kind of like what Joyce Meyer said. She said, everybody wants a drive-through breakthrough. I was kidding. I was playing with you. You knew that when I said, let me tell you how to always, 100% of the time, get an immediate answer. I wish I knew how. But I guarantee I'd have a book on that if I knew how. But I just, I know that God is good no matter what. But the reason I wanted to share this with you tonight is because as we go through life, not only do we have to know these things for our personal wisdom, and to learn how to be led by the Holy Spirit as we encounter different types of situations. But, but there's all kinds of people out there that have gotten mad at God. They're angry at God. They went through something. Maybe they went through condemnation because somebody said, well, if you're having this problem, there must be sin in your life. And so they got mad at God and, and that type of thing. Or maybe somebody told them, well, God's put this terrible condition on you to teach you something. You know, all kinds of people are offended and alienated at God because they got lied to by religious traditions and things of that nature. So I don't claim to know everything. Uh, there's some things I don't know why. Some things I think just happen because we live in a fallen world. But, but we do see these three storms I had a lady, I'll close with this. I had a lady come to me one time. I'd shared this message and she said, Brother Cook, really appreciated that message. Got a lot out of it, etc. But she said, what do you do if you're in all three storms at once? She said, because there's one area of my life where I just did a stupid, I, I, did, I knew it was wrong when I did it. And, I did, and I'm, she said, I'm dealing with consequences from that bad decision. And she said, there's another area of my life where I just determined I'm going to obey God. And in the area that I decided to obey God, it seems like all hell broke loose to discourage me in that area that I decided to do the right thing for God. 
And she said, there's a third area of my life where somebody close to me made a decision and it's had all kinds of negative ramifications on me. I'm suffering consequences from their bad decision. What do you do? And I said, ma'am, I said, I've never thought about that. That's a great question. I said, the only thing I know to tell you is in the one area you just need to repent like Jonah. In the other area, you just need to speak the word like Jesus. And in the other area, you need to persevere like Paul. Just do it all. But let me tell you this. Jonah made it to Nineveh. Jesus made it to the other side. And Paul made it to Rome. They all made it to their destination. And that's something that's very important too. Don't get so distracted on the storms of life that you lose sight of your goals, of your dream, of your vision, of your assignment, of your destination. You have a purpose in life. And usually the storms that come are meant to distract you and keep you from getting to your divine destiny. Don't let the storm do that to you. Amen.